First Peter chapter three, we'll wrap up this section, verses 13 through 22. This back half of the section has a lot here. So uh, we're, gonna, we're going to buckle up and um, cover some major ground. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and all of that endeavor. And as we dig our hands in the soil that is God's word, as rich as it is, uh, we need a spirit's assistance, not only to understand, but also to be changed by what we read, right? So uh, let's pray this morning to that end. Father, we do look to you. That is the disposition of our heart. This is a, a futile exercise. If your spirit does not take your word, uh, grant understanding, illuminate our minds, and Lord, prick our hearts and our consciences, convicting us of sin, but also, Lord, compelling us to turn and seek that which is righteous, which is honoring to you. We want to be people who live by 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. We are a people turning from sin and seeking to do that which is good. Uh, Lord, as we do this, Lord, we want to be coached now, instructed and built up of what it is to live in a world that, that no doubt doesn't always love you and receive the message of the gospel. And we know this full well. And so we ask that you would equip us still further to be more faithful evangelists and stewards of this message for your great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone stick just one finger in the air for me and then go ahead and lick that finger. Um, just kidding. Uh, we're going we're gonna to turn a lot, okay? So have this out. You don't have an outline this morning. I have put it on the PowerPoint. Um, so you, you have to, everyone moan, you have to actually write it down. Uh, bah humbug, okay. So you have to write it down. That's okay because we are going to uh, be moving quite rapidly. By way of reminder, this is the second part of a section, a pericope, right? Uh, verses 18 through 22 is what we'll cover today. And really the message of verse 13 through 22 is the following. Christians are to face any and all opposition to their faith with a what kind of confidence? Complete confidence in what, has, what God has achieved through his son. The reality is, is that sometimes when a believer lives faithfully by God's word, right? Their lives are shaped by 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 turning from sin, doing what is good, sometimes that faithfulness silences critique. And sometimes when even attached to gospel proclamation, it can actually lead to the conversion of, of an unbeliever, and we praise God for that. And yet there are other scenarios that we know full well as well. That faithfulness can instead also invite hostility and opposition. And so what do you and I do with said opposition when it comes our way? People of God, we face it, and we face it with confidence, right? That's really the two rails of thought that Peter's locomotive of instruction runs on. There's what you and I should do, verses 13 through 17, but, and praise God for this, there is also what God has done, amen? Verses 18 through 22. Let's just review what we covered last week, right? Kind of scan your eyes at verses 13 through 17. Some of the practical guidelines of what we are to do as we face opposition is we remember that we are blessed, right? If you suffer for what is doing what is right, you are considered blessed. That whole Matthew 5 principle as well. Blessed are you who suffer for the cause of righteousness, right? Remember to fear Christ. We sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. He has preeminent place in every facet of our lives. We're also prepared to answer, right? To give it a defense of this hope, this living hope, as Peter says, that's within us, as people will take note. How is that answer to be given? Be prepared to answer gently, right? With gentleness and reverence. And we had a rich time last Sunday, you and I working back and forth of, wow, what, how does that impact, impact us and where does that show up and challenge us? Well, the apostle, led by God's spirit, is not done with us right there at the verse, end of verse 17. He knows that there are some rather haunting questions that still rest in the minds and hearts of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Uh, questions that, that, that plague them. Well, questions like, well, what assurance do I have, Peter, that those who do shame me, who do revile my good behavior in Christ, what is the assurance that I have that they're going to be put to shame? What confidence do I have that the evil forces of this world will not prevail? What motivation do I have to fear Christ when the prospect is for me in fearing Christ, I'm going to face some very, very hard circumstances. 
Well, Peter, knowing these questions, he quickly undergirds these practical guidelines of verses 13 through 17 with some profound, robust theological pillars. And that's our passage today. Peter says, let me tell you what God has done, right? You as a believer can have complete confidence in what God has achieved through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And it's only, only when you're in possession of that kind of sweet assurance that you are going to be able to do what? You're going to be able to face opposition and hostility for your faithfulness to him. You have full assurance of the final outcome. And that is all the motivation that you need to revere the Lord and face some really, really dark days. Let's unpack this confidence and we'll focus now on verses 18 through 22. Okay? For Christ, no, for is signifying a continuation of thought, right? For Christ also died for sins once for all. Beautiful phrase. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which he also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who once were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, that's an important phrase we'll unpack. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, Hebrews chapter 1, after angels and authorities and powers had been, what church? subjected to him. There's what you should do. There's also what God has done. And that is not to be forgotten. What is the basis of Christian confidence? What is it that God has done? Number one, Christ has triumphed over all evil. Right? Christ has triumphed over all evil. evil. He reigns victorious over all evil. You see, woven in this passage is a beautiful image. <laughs> There's this glorious victory banner, and it's at the top of a hill. And Peter's very clear to point out not only whose, whose hands are responsible for waving this banner, but also the audience before whom this victory banner is being waved. And we'll take note of both. For starters, this is a victory banner that's being waved before ultimate haters of God. They knew of people who hated God. So this was of profound impact to them. His victory banner is, has already been waved before the ultimate of haters. Look at verse 18. Christ's triumph is proclaimed, is announced, is declared to those who re really were the poster children of wickedness and rebellion. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. We'll come back to that in just a second. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now pause. Why is this significant? Why is this significant? Well, you have several critics today who, not only back then, but even today, who dispute Christ's resurrection from the dead by claiming that Christ never truly 100% expired, right? That he, he never died in the first place. He simply fainted into a, into a semi-coma, uh, he was revived in the coolness of the tomb. He managed to unwrap himself and walk out of the tomb. But the phrase here, having been put to death in the flesh, leaves no doubt that on the cross, Jesus' physical life ceased being, his physical life. But he's also to, clear to point out as well, his spiritual life remained, right? He, he was made alive in the spirit. Now, this, is, this being made alive is not Peter's way of pointing out Christ's resurrection. No, the point is very clear. Even though Jesus' earthly life on this planet ceased, his earthly body was dead, his eternal spirit has always been alive and will remain alive. And three days later, after his crucifixion, his body is going to be resurrected, amen, to join his spirit in a transformed and eternal state. Now that leaves us with a question. Between Christ's death and resurrection, his living spirit is going to do something of which suffering believers in the first century were to take note of. 
and they were to be encouraged by. Look at verse 19. Peter continues. In which he also, that's Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What's going on here? Because this is peculiar, (laughs) to say the least. I was talking to someone even in the back. This is a doozy, okay? What's happening, and keep in your mind suffering believers, right? Stand firm in the midst of suffering and think every word that I read, how does it lead to that? Standing firm in the midst of suffering. Here's what's being conveyed. Jesus is announcing triumph over all his enemies. Satan, death, sin, and hell. He made proclamation. He preached, right? Now, this is not Peter's normal word for preaching the gospel, evangelizo, right? This is a word to herald the arrival of a victorious king. This is that word, proclaimed. And this is not espousing, therefore, some sort of second chance after death to these evil spirits. It's some sort of post-mortem evangelism. That, that would be contrary to many other places in Scripture, and so therefore is not to be entertained. Now, this is Jesus simply and powerfully announcing that his literal death, resurrection, and exaltation, the very thing, mind you, that in Matthew chapter 4, Satan had tempted him with, this sort of bloodless path to glory he held out to Christ as a temptation. And Jesus says, no, my death, my resurrection, my exaltation is that which literally has sealed your doom and defeat. And you can picture the victory banner waving, right? Between Christ's death and resurrection, his living spirit went to the demon spirits bound in the abyss and proclaimed that in spite of his death, he had triumphed over them. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 for a moment. In ancient times, heralds would come to town as representatives of the rulers to make a public announcement that a particular king had won a battle, right? Now, we've seen this in this epistle, the book of Colossians. Colossians 2, 14. As Christ canceled out the certificate of debt, right? The wages of sin is death. He took that debt out of the way by nailing it to the cross. And as he does this, he simultaneously disarms the rulers and authorities and makes a public display of them. And I love this phrase, having triumphed over them through him. This is exactly what God is doing. See, you're reading and then you look up and you never know where I'm going to be, right? Floating around the room. A public announcement that he had disarmed them and their doom and defeat was sure. Now, there's still an interpretive question for you and I. Well, who on earth, in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, who are these prisoners that are bound in the abyss? Who were disobedient in the day of Noah? Again, Christ here is waving this victory banner before the poster children of rebellion and wickedness. For starters, let's begin to kind of unearth this. He says, to the spirits. Now, what can you deduce from there? When you read to the spirits, who is this talking about? Is this talking about human beings? No. These are angelic beings, right? Scripture is very clear that ever since the fall... The fall of Satan and his demons, there has been this ongoing cosmic conflict between the angelic forces of good and the angelic forces of evil. Peter told the Ephesian church, right, your struggle is not with what? Flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, listen, you don't struggle against the powers of earthly individuals. These people that persecute you for your faith, that's not even your struggle. No, you struggle against the powers of unbound demons whose forces 
influence a very corrupt and broken and fallen world system around you of which Satan rules. That is that cosmic conflict of which you live before. Now, those are unbound spirits, but Peter writes, well, these are different. These are bound spirits. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. Peter's quick to point out that this victory announcement is being given to bound spirits. The, the angelic spirits that Christ was to address were now in prison. And make no mistake about it, church, they're in prison because who put them there? Because God put them there, right? Again, why is this here? And how does this compel standing firm in the midst of suffering? God put these, people, these beings here, almost said people. They are in the abyss, the bottomless pit. And we know this in the book of Revelation, right? Revelation 9, chapter 9, calls this prison the bottomless pit, the abyss. It's the very place, as you fast forward in the end of Revelation, that Satan himself is going to be held prisoner during Christ's millennial reign on the earth. He will be chained. He would be locked up there with his other demonic prisoners. No longer, praise God, able to execute his anti-God and God-hating agenda on this planet. And 2 Peter offers us a lot of help here. Because it teaches us that God has sovereignly chosen to incarcerate certain demons in a pit of punishment. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Look back at the top of that, verse 4. God did not spare angels, but cast them into hell. Peter uses a very important word that they were very, very well acquainted with. Hell denotes the severest place of torment and judgment. I told you to lick your finger. Turn over to the book of Jude for a moment. The book of Jude. God has imprisoned certain fallen angels, the most wicked, the most vile and perverted of demons, in a place of severest torment and isolation. And in that place, what are they doing? They are awaiting their final sentence. Their final sentencing, sentencing of punishment in the eternal lake of fire. Look at Jude 6. Jude describes these individuals such as this. He says, angels who did not keep their own domain. And we begin to see who these spirits are. But abandon their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Since they in the same way as, as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example. I love that. An example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Starting to become a little clearer. Who are these certain angels, these fallen demons? Well, Peter reveals when this angelic sin occurred. Well, whose days were they? Whose days were these events accomplished? When did this take place? In the days of who? 1 Peter 3. In the days of Noah. And where is Noah written? Where, where's the accounts of Noah's life? Where is it recorded? Genesis chapter 6. And guess where I would like for you to turn right now? Genesis chapter 6. The reason that God has bound these beings permanently in this place of imprisonment is because of their specific act of disobedience in the days of Noah. Now, as you're making your way to Genesis chapter 6, it conveys that these are certain fallen angels, and, and Moses describes them as sons of God. Not sons of men, but sons of God. And whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that's angelic beings, spirits. And these spirits, these angelic beings, had left their angelic domain to indulge in unnatural relationships with human beings. Not unlike the men of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 through 19 sought to indulge in unnatural relationships with angelic beings, right? 
Look at Genesis chapter 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, these are these angelic beings, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of, who were of old, men of renown. It's a dark picture here. There were demons in Noah's day who were running riot on the earth. They were filling the world with their wicked, vile, and God-hating agenda. And that included sexual sin as well. Even to the extent that even after 120 years of Noah preaching of them to be spared of judgment, a flood is coming and he's hammering and building the ark. He did not convince one additional person beyond the members of his family to repent, believe, and escape judgment. Only eight people. One of the byproducts of this wicked rebellion was that these beings actually possessed various men on the earth. And they produced offspring through a marital union with earthly women. This is why I will not strive forever, the Lord says. Judgment is coming. Look at Genesis 6, 5. These demons, their influence was so far-reaching that Genesis 6 goes on to record. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wickedness was so rampant that the world was being terrorized by these angelic beings. These individuals, even known as Moses writes, the Nephilim, right? No doubt the offspring, the children of these demons, wicked rebellion. And God, what does he do? He acts swiftly, does he not? To judge them via the destruction of a flood. Look at Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Because of whom? Because of man, but most assuredly because of the influence of these angelic beings. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. The earth is filled with violence. That's literally what Nephilim means. Great power that crushes other people. And what was about to crush them? The flood of judgment, right? This is, the, this is the scene that Peter is hearkening these New Testament believers back to. Stand firm in the midst of suffering. But what if they oppose me? Stand firm and stand firm with confidence. Why? Well, Peter's conveying, listen, Christ has already pronounced his victory over Satan, sin, Death and hell. You need not fear. He's already marched in and the king's victory has already been pronounced. And it is sure. That's pretty powerful when you think about these angelic beings from Genesis chapter 6. Noah's day, as they're sitting in this bottomless pit and they look upon Calvary, what are they tempted to think? They're tempted to think that who had won? That Satan, their master, and they had won. You can picture them sneering and snarling and with glee and, and Christ barges in and throws open the doors and says, no, no, no. I have won. And can you imagine their faces when Christ barges in? I wouldn't want to be a fly on the wall in that wretched place, but what a scene that would have been. Christ has waved his victory banner before ultimate haters, but... We also need to take note that this victory banner is also being waved by the one who reigns supreme. And that's what verse 22 of 1 Peter 3 is all about. 
you have to look at the hands of he who is holding this victory banner. Look at verse 22. This victory has been authenticated by Christ's supremacy. For he is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. Now, this is referring to his now ascension that we see in Acts chapter 1, right? And he's sure to do what? Just as he left, he's also going to what? He's going to return in the same way. Talk about a contrast. He went down, pronounced victory, and he ascended up. And yet he's going to come back. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And you can hear the suffering believers breathe a sigh of relief. This crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, is at the right hand of the Father. Now we know this, our pastor preached just a couple months ago from Hebrews chapter 1, right? We've seen this with Christ being at the right hand. In this position, all evil powers and all authorities do what? They bow in submission to this one who is victorious. That's what subjected means. It, it means to line up under everything and everyone else, spiritual and physical, finds its place under the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of God. And in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, that is the premier place of power and prestige, right? It's a place of honor and authority for all eternity. Pause for a moment and think about if you're a first century believer living in a very small minority in a very hostile culture, what would this have meant to you? My Savior is at the right hand of God, and no one can take him from that place. Which takes you back to how this passage begins, right? Who is there to harm you when you suffer for doing what is good? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Very Romans 8-esque, no one. We know this right hand. Philippians chapter 2, he expounds on Jesus' humility, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And what does he say? For this reason also God did what? Highly exalted him, giving him the name which is above every name, so that at that name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is who? Jesus Christ, the Lord, to the glory of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, he is the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had, and we'll unpack this in a second, made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, for he has inherited a better name. Right? The name that's above every name. Friends, here's what Peter's doing. More importantly, here's what God is doing right here in this text. Man, what are we doing going back to Genesis 6 and Jesus announcing his victory to in, in, enslaved and imprisoned uh, angelic beings? What's happening here? Let's keep it very simple. God is emphasizing two things. He says that in Christ's cross, and resurrection and exaltation, that leads to two things. That leads to number one, that all things and all beings are subjected to him. Physical and spiritual, even over fallen and rebellious angelic beings. But secondly, that means because of Christ and what he's done, souls are saved from eternal judgment. And that leads us to the second part of this passage. That is, Christ's triumph means unwavering salvation to the believer. Yeah, but what about crazy Emperor Nero? Christ's triumph leads to unwavering salvation to the believer. That unwavering part is, pretty, is a pretty big deal. Salvation. Look at verse 18. It's unwavering because it rests in the ultimate sin bearer himself. Verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, 
the just for the unjust so that he might what, church? Okay, say it like you're thankful. So that he might what? Bring us to God, okay? Christ suffered to deal once and for all with our sins by dying as a sin offering in our place, the just for the unjust. Friends, this is the gospel doctrine that we love as a church and stand firm in as a church, right? The doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, that an innocent one stood in my place, in your place. Christ died the just for the unjust. You and I are fallen, sinful, broken human beings. We deserve to die. Jesus did not. But he died for sins. Well, whose sins? That's a fair question. Not his own sin. That much we can be assured, right? Look at 1 Peter 2.22. Peter's already conveyed to you this morning that this Christ has committed no sin. There was not a single thought, a word, or action that did not fully please God. He was 100% holy in every facet of his life. And so, church, if there was ever anyone who walked this green earth and was considered just, it was this one person. Later, in some time, we're going to get to Hebrews chapter 9. This is a really profound theme throughout the whole book of Hebrews. Christ was offered once for the sins of many. Such a simple but beautiful statement, isn't it? Christ was offered once for the sins of many. That's what you and I as believers call the great exchange, right? In the just one bearing our sin, God imputed the penalty of our sin upon his just and perfect son and then simultaneously imputed his perfect righteousness to our account. And it is a great exchange. That's what you and I call radical grace, is it not? He took my sin and gave me his righteousness? Now, think about if you're a believer, not just in 2022, but think about it in first century. You're a part of the new covenant, part of this new covenant church that's fledgling and suffering at the hands of those who hate God and hate his gospel. And you would have been an individual, you would have been very well acquainted with the Old Testament, right? And that Old Testament law required animal sacrifices to symbolize the, the need to atone for our sin by the death of an innocent substitute, right? But those sacrifices of old, again, a grand theme of the book of Hebrews, were only a shadow of what was to come. And not so much what, but who was to come. For Peter is very clear to point out that Christ died for sin. And here's the important phrase. I was just talking about it in the men's restroom. You can talk about theology even in the bathroom, right? Christ died for sins once for all. Now, brothers and sisters, that would have been an absolute game changer if you were a believer suffering for your faith, scattered across Asia Minor in Peter's day. Once for all, literally perpetually valid, Never need repeating. And for them who could still remember and recall the sacrificial system, this notion of once for all was a very new concept. To atone for sin, well, they had slaughtered millions of of lambs throughout the centuries. During the annual Passover celebration, as many as a quarter of a million sheep would have been slain and sacrificed. The river Jordan would have literally flowed with blood through the city of Jerusalem. They knew this full well. And yet herein lies the power of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Christ won sacrificial death, ended that insufficient parade of animal sacrifices to the altar, and was now sufficient for all time. He took the punishment due to the elect, and he bore it on himself, and in so doing, he fully, completely satisfied God's righteous judgment against sin. We know this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right? He, God, made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God, important phrase, in him, not of our own doing. And the purpose of this sacrifice, and you said it with such gratitude and enthusiasm earlier, was to bring us to God. Again, 
How does this compel people to stand firm in the midst of suffering? Keep that in mind. I have been brought near to God. When you are suffering, what is the temptation? To think that you are somehow, somehow far off or away from God. So for Peter, led by God's spirit to pronounce, Christ has been offered once for all to bring you to God. And you will never be as close as, you, you are as close as you need to be because of the work of Christ. Forget the suffering that you are experiencing in the hands of Nero. Who is there to harm you? Again, no one. You are secure and you are safe, not from your own doing, because of God's doing. Now we know this in the gospel, yes? It's important to remind us, this is breathtaking and forceful to New Testament believers, not only them, but even for us today. You and I, we know this, before we came to Christ, before God saved us and caused us to be born again, we were made to enjoy this satisfying relationship with our creator and something happened, right? Sin messed things up. Our sin messed things up. Sin entered the picture and did a number on this relationship that otherwise you and I are to enjoy. Sin broke it. It separated us from a holy God. And the bad news is, right, we know this. In the gospel, you and I do not have the capacity or the power to mend that relationship back together. So what did we need? We needed God to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Christ was offered once for all to bring us to God. Praise God, that's exactly what God did. Look at chapter 2. Here's where this becomes even more forceful and powerful. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25 says, we've been brought to our shepherd, right? The unseen Christ, chapter 1, verse 8. And as the good shepherd, he remains what? The what of our souls? The what of our souls? The guardian of our souls. How does that compel you to stand firm in the midst of suffering? He is the guardian of your soul. Who is there to harm you? No one. And because he's the guardian of your soul, what does it mean, believers, that this great shepherd is going to do for you even as you pass through suffering? What does he promise to you? Where is he going to eventually and finally lead you to? To heaven, to home. We are aliens, exiles, 1 Peter, right? We're just passing through. And we have a good shepherd the great shepherd that will guard us and lead us home. How does this compel you to stand firm in the midst of suffering? This is all the motivation you need to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. Come what may. Peter's just unleashing encouragement on all those who are suffering for the name of Christ. This Christ, our shepherd, is going to lead us safely home. And yet there's still this pressing question that Peter addresses. Well, can this future purpose of God, I know he's the guardian of my soul. I know, he will, I know you tell me he will lead me safely home. But can God's plan and purpose be thwarted? Because, man, it sure feels like his plan is being thwarted right now. I hear what you're saying, but I also know what I'm living and Peter answers with a resounding no. And he backs this up by rushing us to the example of what happened in Noah's day, which leads us to the last and final subpoint. This salvation is unwavering because it rests in the ultimate work of Christ. Ultimate work of Christ. Now, we have a challenge because we have the end of verse 20 and verse 21. And we have 20 minutes, okay? So let's look at it. That's a challenge because there's a lot here. This is ultimate because this work is finished. Look at verse 20. These angelic beings who were once disobedient when, obedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now, here we go. We, very, we pay very close attention to what's next here. And we set out with faithful principles of interpretation to understand what's being conveyed, okay? 
The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now this historical reference carries significant correlating meaning to believers this side of the cross and for believers in Peter's day who were suffering. Look at verse 21. Corresponding to that, that being Noah's family being brought safely through the the water, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can the purpose of God be thwarted? Absolutely not, Peter says. And he, being led by God's spirit, unleashes this encouragement on those who are suffering. And how is this particular reference to Noah and being spared through the water, how is this encouraging? Well, these individuals, these eight, Noah's family, they were saved while others were judged when God's patience ran out, right? They were in a similar position to Peter's readers, no? They... Noah's family, as a minority, faced hostile, evil, wretched, wicked forces and were under a great amount of pressure, you can imagine. Only eight people? And we just read Genesis 6 of how God viewed the planet at that day. It was filled with violence. I'm going to talk about being in the minority. And when judgment came with the floodwaters, eight persons were saved in what? What were they saved in? An ark, right? They were saved through an ark through those same waters of judgment. Now, it wasn't the waters that saved them, was it? What was it that saved them? That waters was just a physical expression, a violent global expression, rather, of God's judgment. It wasn't the waters that saved them. No, what saved them was the ark that carried them through the judgment. Therein lies the correlating connection here, right? Here's the implication. The ark was a picture of a greater spiritual reality and truth that was yet to come. And that future ark was to not be an object, but a person. (laughs) And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As those first raindrops began to fall, judgment coming, you can imagine the scene of people who listened to Noah for decades as he hammered on this boat, talking about rain of which they had never seen. And those eight people, they placed themselves where? They placed themselves inside that wooden vessel. God sealed up the door in Genesis 7. And Peter here, led by God's spirit, is now likening that ark To all persons and believers who do what? Who place themselves in that ark that has now come, whose name is Christ himself. Believers who place themselves in Jesus for salvation. Here is what Peter's doing. Christ is the ark of our salvation. And just as the ark carried them into a new world, right? A new creation, which is the way Genesis 9, verses 1 and following, really describes their new life. Peter says that similarly, Christ is the one who carries us through judgment. You don't have to feel and know the fury of God's wrath. Why? Because you are inside a greater ark who will pass you through judgment. Judgment fell on him just as the judgment of the floodwaters fell on the ark itself. Now, I'm a big proponent for keeping things very simple because we can dive in and miss the forest so much for the trees. The message really that's wanting to be palpable to believers in Peter's day is that if you are in Christ, even if you are in Christ and you are suffering for your faith in Christ, you are in the ark of safety. Who is there to harm you? No one. You are in the ark of safety, that is Christ himself, and thus you will sail over the waters of judgment where? Ride on into eternal glory. The guardian of your souls will ensure this. 
This is what Peter's reference to baptism is referring to. It's not referring to water baptism. That is why for the sake of not being misunderstood, Peter included not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's a very important phrase. This is not regenerative baptism, that you, you get dunked, you get immersed, you get sprinkled, right? And you are therefore regenerated. That's not what this is talking about. Baptism, immersion, right? By placing our trust in Christ, we too, we know this, Romans 6, right? Have literally been immersed into Christ. And therefore we experience unwavering union with this Christ. Just like the eight who crawled into that wooden boat, the likes of which the world had never seen, we too experience Christ as an ark of safety from the judgment of God. Look at, I'm going to read Romans 6, 3 for the sake of time. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? You have been baptized into him. And how can you, you and I have confidence in the reliability of this ark of safety? What did God do after his son was crucified and died? Three days later, he what? Raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 1. He was declared to be the son of God in power by being raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead. How can I have confidence in this ark of safety that is Jesus Christ? God raised him from the dead. Any sin, any guilty conscience, and some in this room maybe entered this place with some very, very heavy burdens. Listen, it's not an external right to ritual or, or, or behavior or action modification that saves you and cleanses your conscience. It is the agreement of God that you get into the ark of safety, which is his son. That is what deals with your guilt and your conscience. I think herein lies exactly the encouragement that God intended for believers in Peter's day. When the day of judgment comes, even as you suffer, be encouraged that as judgment comes, you are safe. You are unwaveringly safe being in the ark of safety, Jesus Christ, God's son. Now, what do these victorious realities of Jesus Christ, and we only have a few minutes, what do they do to us? We want to just kind of cover living what we learn. We're skipping a lot there, a lot of meat on the bone. What do these victorious realities of Jesus Christ do to us? There are a number of implications that flow to us. Let me kind of just open the floor, hear from you this morning. What does this do to believers who are suffering for their faith? Encourages them. Joseph, what's that? Know that they have hope, right? It's a living hope, but there's an assurity that comes from this. What else? It sharpens our focus, right? Absolutely, eternal perspective. That's exactly right. And sometimes if we look at temporary surroundings, right, and earthly events, what are we prone to do, John? We are prone to despair, and be discouraged. And even as John says, you know what? My focus is sharpened. I've got an eternal perspective. Excellent. What else? How does this help you faithfully live out verses 13 through 17? And that's part of the, that's part of the whole section here. Embolden you. Absolutely. Anything else? Perseverance, right? Not cowering or compromising at the first sign of resistance. Someone else? A desire for others to get in the ark of safety. That's excellent. Yes. Yeah. Eye on the prize. Excellent. Anything else? 
Strengthens, yeah. When you're in a small group and you're surrounded by the masses who does not share the worldview that you possess, does not share the faith and hope that you possess, and whose literally sole agenda is everything anti-God, the God that you love, (laughs) and whose allegiance belongs to, you imagine how this would have inserted just hope-filled power and enthusiasm and wind in their sails to be faithful, to give a defense for the hope that's within them? This would have been remarkable in their lives. And, and you know what? It, it, it should be and is remarkable in our lives as well. Yes? Our hope and prayer, even at North Lake Bible Church, we look outside of this place. We want to live out 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, do we not? They, we want the world to say, what is, it that's, what is up with you people? What's going on here? And hey, let me tell you about this living hope that I have. And let me tell you why I have it. It's not of my own doing. It's because of the work of another, Right? Let's pray this morning and ask for the Lord's help and pray for our pastor even as he opens up God's word again. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness, its depth, its complexity. We thank you for the time and the freedom without fear of persecution, unlike believers in Peter's day, to open up this book and to mine from its riches and allow it to wash over us encouragement and hope And Lord, also just give us a a great amount of of compulsion and motivation to do just that, to be faithful and to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts in every facet of our day-to-day. Lord, would you help us with that even this week as we have opportunities around around us and we will no doubt have them. May we be quick, may our impulse be quick to speak of this hope that we have in you. Lord, would you break our hearts for those who do not yet possess this hope. And Lord, we ask through the ministry of gospel proclamation that comes out of North Lake Bible Church and its people. We pray that you would save many, save many into your eternal kingdom for your great glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.